Welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson, and I want to begin with a prayer. I offer gratitude to the ways in which our current circumstances may awaken a wide and deep appreciation for our interconnectedness. How we are each affected by one another and our habits and choices a greater awareness for the sources to our nourishment and supplies, and the industries and systems we have not wholly considered. May there be a global invitation to return to a village consciousness. I offer prayers that our resilient bodies remain or become healthier, that we are kind and compassionate with one another, that we demonstrate our respect and understanding for our human circumstances in the context of our place on earth. May we listen each day for how we might be good partners for each other, human, wild, and otherwise, for how we might see what we may have been unable to see before, and to sing our songs and shed our tears and shout our exaltations, rejoice and fall to our knees for the heartbreak and beauty that is before us. This uh, prayer, this poem prayer, comes from a friend of mine, Christy, who were both in the guide training program at Anmus Valley Institute in Colorado, and I asked her if it'd be okay if I read a little portion of the last email she sent out to all of us, which I found moving and, and needed and necessary and, and beautiful. So... I do want to um, wish you safety and health um, and strength and courage. I've been thinking about, about the word courage, which comes from the French word for heart. I wish you a full heart. And it seems like um, the, on the one hand, we're sharing something globally which is a kind of confinement and isolation and a Sabbath, a ceasing from our ordinary work and activity and roles and modes and ways of being. And yet within that, there is a lot of diversity. There's a lot of, there's a full range of experience depending on how this virus has woven its way into the fabric of 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 our families and our communities and our lives. And, um, you know, I saw a friend of mine that I went to high school with, he posted a picture the other day and he's, he's an ER doctor and he was putting on his mask and he had this shirt on that said, you know, the night shift and he was just going into work. And, um, I found it, um, kind of moving and, and also helped me see just how wildly different so many of us are being uh, asked to engage with this sort of unprecedented, unimagined, a global um, crisis and situation. So, um, yeah, I, I wish you courage and safety and um, and well-being, and also to. Um, to the, to the task at hand, I hope to offer a podcast today around the question of what really matters. And 
the first thing I want to say is that I don't intend to answer that directly. In fact, I think maybe it's more important to say the very question itself is part of, of the global awakening to the question itself, what really matters? And to not be too quick to rush ahead to answer that question, particularly with our worldviews and our cliches and our sayings and our um, uh, habits and ideologies, but to let the question do its work. Maybe I should just speak personally. That's the question that's been working on me. What really matters? What really matters? In my last podcast, I mentioned something, and, I, and I've been, you know, taking it as seriously as I can, which is I, I felt the invitation to do what I'm calling a searching spiritual inventory. A searching spiritual inventory. Of course, I'm borrowing that from the 12 steppers who are way ahead of the game. Um, I feel that... Uh, even with so much unknown, that that's the right kind of move, the right kind of examination, a searching spiritual inventory around the question of what really matters, what matters, how have I been living, and um, how have we been living, and like I said before, not to be too quick to rush to the easy answer for that kind of stuff. So that's where I'm going with this podcast. And a couple of um, sort of advertising things. The first is a is a deep um, thank you to all of you who have lis- listened to my podcast one time or 30 times. I don't know how many episodes I have, something like that. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much to my supporters, um, not only those who just listen and sort of share, which I really appreciate, but also my patrons who support me on Patreon, really, especially right now. I'm just really grateful. Thank you for saying this matters enough to me to to support it. And I I crossed a a kind of milestone milestone, um, that I, I don't know, didn't even imagine when I first started with just like a few experiments on my own and with my friend Paul, just what would it be like to make a podcast? And I just crossed over 100,000 total downloads, which is you know, bigger than I, I, I dreamed. I just thought, hey, maybe a few people might check this out, my friends. <laughs> uh, so thank you. And many of you are repeat listeners. That's how I got to 100,000. So um, I hope that continues to grow. And I couldn't do it without your support. So thank you. By way of offerings, uh, of course, ongoing, I offer companion guiding and I've, um, I've opened up some additional spots for that. If that's something that interests you, that's on my website, kentobson.com. And I'm, I'm really excited to announce a brand new offering around dreams, uh, group uh, dream work, which I will begin April 22nd. No, I'm sorry, April 26th, Sunday, Sunday nights. And I'm going to do every Sunday night for six weeks with a friend of mine, Brian Nixon. He's uh, a therapist here in town in, in Grand Rapids, um, who started uh, a practice which is now grown significantly called um, Mindfulness uh, Counseling, GR. You can find them on the web. And I'm really excited to co-facilitate this class. Uh, what happens in times of severance and um, crises and disruption, whether that be personal or uh, collective, uh, cultural, 
is oftentimes our dreams are activated or maybe a better way of saying it is we start to carry the act, our ongoing dreams into our waking consciousness. We start to remember them and, and sometimes they freak us out or they disturb us or they're curious or they're weird or whatever the case may be. Um, but part of change, part of transformation is taking a dip into the underworld. And right now, the collective sphere, the collective unconscious, and our personal unconscious is probably working overtime, sending up smoke signals from the labyrinth of the soul that are worth turning toward. A lot of the work that I have done personally and continue to do um, with others is oriented around dreams. It's a way of checking in with the unconscious, with the soul. Um, with the energies of our being that are just below the surface. So anyway, we're doing six weeks on dreams. We're going to actually work with people's dreams. It's not just we'll talk about dreams in general a little bit, but we'll work at least two dreams from the people in the group um, per session. So all that data information is on my website, kentobson.com, under my programs tab. Please check it out if that interests you. Um, Even if you're not dreaming right now, um, but this is an interest of yours, you might suddenly start. So um, check it out. The the group is going to be pretty small, so space is very limited. So if this interests you, go right away and um, send me an email, sign up, and we'll go from there. So um, that's about all I want to announce right now. My other (laughs) programs like Israel Trips and uh, other kinds of retreats are just on hold like um, so many other things. So um, I want to, uh, I guess I, one way to think about this podcast, the question, what really matters, uh, it, I'm going to break it up into sort of three um, parts. Part one, I want to talk about silence. Uh, part two, I want to talk about uh, severance. And part three, I want to talk about solitude. Uh, I know very sort of <laughs> old school evangelical preacher-ish silence uh severance and solitude um the three yeses that will change your life but these are the things that are working on me and um and it's it's hard to make a podcast beginning part one on silence but maybe the first thing i want to say is that silence matters and just because in a uh, collective, global, globally activated way, we're being invited to a kind of silence in the sense of ceasing from activity doesn't mean our inner world is going to shut up. And, and open up to the possibility of listening on a deeper level. But I think something like that is what we're being invited to. So I want to read a little passage uh, from Rilke. And this comes from, um, oh crap, I shut it. Let me see if I can find it. I have it on my computer here. Here we go. This comes from uh, a a letter. Letters to a Young Poet is um, the collection that that I have on my bookshelf. Anyway, he's writing back and forth with a with a young poet, and and at one point he offers the following uh, invitation: "Be patient, 
toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Like locked rooms, like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers, which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. And I hear Rilke saying something like, be patient. And even the question of what really matters, that's in part what I'm saying. Be patient. Be silent. <laughs> Wait. Um, all that is unresolved in your heart, try to love that as a question itself. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know if anyone knows what to do. Be patient toward all that is unresolved in your heart. Try to love the question. Think about loving the question of what really matters. In fact, the very essence of being a human being is to crave and long and pursue meaning. I mean, in, in some ways, this sounds dumb. I, my, my high school kids, when I, when I taught, would always sometimes just ask me, what's the meaning of life? And part of the answer to that is to seek meaning, to love meaning, to fall in love with meaning, to take the risk and the adventure of walking toward discovering meaning in your own life and creating meaning in your own life or co-creating meaning in your life and in your community and in your family and in the world, something like that. Try to love the question of what really matters because it's a question that resolves around or revolves around a meaning. And don't be too quick to answer. That's what I hear Rilke sort of challenging me with. Don't be too quick to answer. I know, but rather, I don't know. And I'm waiting, and I'm listening. Because even if someone gave me the answers on their Instagram feed, or put up some quote on Facebook, I wouldn't be able to live the answer anyway. Um, that's what I hear Rilke saying here. So I guess I'm uh, personally feeling the invitation toward increased levels of silence and even actively and intentionally choosing silence, like less news and less social media. I was seriously embarrassed about how much screen time I was actually in, engaged in early on, as if my ego was absolutely freaking out thinking it could fix or solve or get around whatever was happening. And uh, just now I'm feeling like the draining of that kind of adrenaline. It's gone. It's worn off. Um, for the first time in the last couple weeks, I'm starting to feel the grief of all this. And the circles are closing in. And now I have friends who have friends or relatives who are being touched by this virus um, and whose lives are being disrupted and lives are being lost. And I'm starting to feel the kind of grief and, and, and job loss and desperation that's happening. 
And of course, like my own, I don't know about you, but my own coping strategies for staying numb are also like just off the charts. Like, um, go back to sleep, you know, don't think. So it's like, you know, I, I guess I'm feeling the, the fullness and the complexity and the paradoxes of, of being, of just being alive right now. Um, and of sharing space and, and internet access and trying to think of creative ways of working. And um, in other words, I'm feeling the kind of um, pregnant invitation of the moment and also wishing it would just all go away and just end and quote, go back to normal. Although my intuition is that it can't and it won't and it shouldn't. So let the question work. Um, what really matters? Love it like locked rooms, like some foreign tongue. I remember when when I first moved to Israel, it seems like, like a different lifetime ago, I knew I had to learn Hebrew, starting with biblical Hebrew and then a little bit of modern Hebrew. And, and I, when I first got there, I moved there with my wife and my 18-year-old daughter. And we stayed in the dorms at um, Jerusalem University College, which is the first uh, place that I, the first um, graduate school that I attended there. And uh, there was nobody around. It was cold. It was winter. It was January. Um, I was tired and confused and a little scared. And I went to the library and I got out a book. I got out a, a book on like Hebrew grammar. And I had zero exposure to Hebrew. And I started with the alphabet and I looked at it and I felt a kind of terror. I don't even know what these black symbols on the page mean. They don't equate, they don't compute. There's no way I will ever be able to make sense of these shapes. That's how I felt. And that's what I sense with what Rilke is saying here. Try to love the deep questions that you have about your life, about who you are, about the way the world is, about meaning and truth. Try to love them like you would love um, a locked room, or a foreign tongue you do not yet know. And to learn any kind of language takes tremendous time and struggle and a few tears and a few breakthroughs. And every once in a while, instead of ordering um, apple juice uh, at, the, <laughs> at the cafe, you order potato juice, because the words are very close in Hebrew. And the dozens of mistakes that I, I made are part of the process and things take time and a certain amount of silence and stillness I think is uh, part of the the psycho-spiritual invitation of the moment, part of the archetypal invitation, part of the symbolic inv invitation, the actual invitation, um, part of the the kairos moment that we're in, the culmination of things. That's part one. Part two is connected to the word severance and you know, I've been talking about severance um, for a long time in my podcast, in my writing, and in, in, um, in my retreats that I, I lead, in the program that I'm in, Animus, where we're taking out, taking people out to wild places and um, turning them over to the wild world, and and talking about talking with people about their experiences in nature and about what's happening in their lives and what's unraveling and being undone. And severance is an important word. I mean, even if you think about 
sort of the classic pattern of descent and return where you have a kind of preparation phase and then severance and then descent and then underworld and then return, which is one way of talking about um, a transformation, spiritual transformation. Um, severance is being thrown overboard like Jonah. Um, he's set off somewhere. It turns out he's going in the wrong direction, which is kind of the, also the right direction. And at a certain point, he's thrown overboard and there's no going back. He's He's thrown into the water, and the only thing that he can do is sink. And that moment of severance, sometimes it's chosen, chosen, but rarely. It's like it happens unto us. It's like we wake up one day, and it's like we can't go back. We can't go back. And we've been thrown overboard by our parents, by our culture, by our religion, by um, our spouse, by our boss, by um, the, the devastating the devastating heartbreak of just trying to raise kids. Something about the way we thought the world works and is, we get thrown overboard and we're out to sea with no life fest, that severance. And oftentimes I talk about that in, in, in a very personal way. And suddenly I, I'm, I'm seeing and realizing that something like that is happening on the global scale. Probably there has never been a moment in time where First of all, global consciousness is possible. In other words, the entire human field of consciousness is hovering around the same thing. And we have a kind of global interconnected web. And also globally, we're experiencing a kind of severance. We're thrown overboard. Our way of life, our Western, um, Western-influenced way of life, um, a, a culture built on extraction and material possessions, um, and that's not the only thing, uh, of course, but um, the global extraction economy suddenly comes to a screeching halt. And we've all been thrown overboard, something like that. That's what seems to be happening. And, and it feels like, personally, my way of life is disrupted. It feels like my rights and my finances and my habits and my roles, and if we can go just beneath that, the illusions that I carry about myself and about others and about the way the way the world is are seen to be just that. They're seen to be illusions. That's the moment we're overboard. And it's not too pretty. You know, excuse me, I wish deep change, um, psycho-spiritual change. Hold on, I gotta got adjust my mic real quick. It keeps sinking on me. <laughs> Speaking of symbolic here. Even my mic is sinking. Um, the moment we're overboard, it's not like it's like an immediate invitation to, um, hey, I know what this is, and this is psycho-spiritual change, and away we go. It, it actually, uh, there are no guarantees. Like Adrian Rich's poem, you will either go through this door or you will not go through this door. <laughs> the door itself makes no promises. But we're being ushered into that liminal space, leaving one room and having not yet arrived in the other. And, and a fair amount of shouting and puffing ourselves up and retreating, sometimes depending on your personality, um, denial. I mean, this is not happening. And, and I think people on the right and the left and all over the, the place have, we all carry levels of denial. Um, in other words, the shouting, the puffing up, and we do that through our Instagram posts and our Facebook posts and, and the emails that we're sending and the phone calls that we're making and um, 
and there's there's so much right now fighting in in our various ideological corners like almost as if the world has been turned upside down and the one thing that i know is that i don't need to change that my ideological camp and corner i saw this coming my way of life uh, is not to be disrupted. And actually, the entire world needs to conform to my way of life. Now, I'm saying we're doing all this. Let's let ourselves off the hook, mostly unconsciously. It's reactive. It's um, it's like being triggered and activated, to use contemporary language. And but But at the core of that is a kind of shout. I don't have to change. The one thing that I know is that I don't have to I don't have to change in the middle of all this and that is the 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 screaming and the shouting of the small self of the false self to use Thomas Merton. And that's the next person I want to hear from. I wanted today to try to hear from some uh, voices of wisdom. And another thing that I've been feeling in my kind of searching spiritual inventory is, um, is, is just a desire to hear from something other than the news ticker, which is obsessed with the urgency of, of the present. And the irony is the moment that data point is up on the screen, the moment it's already obsolete. And that kind of continuous ticker um, cultural milieu wears away at us, grinds us down leaves us depressed and deflated and demoralized and longing for a sense of wisdom. And the wisdom voices from our various traditions, I think, have a lot to say right now. They've lived through something. They've lived life. And their voices, what makes them part of the wisdom tradition, is that their their way of seeing and being in the world transcended their own circumstances. And therefore, we've heard of them, I guess. <laughs> Um, but anyway, here's here's some uh, uh, some Thomas Merton. I thought a bit of reading about the false self is in order here. So this is what uh, Merton says: Every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. Every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. This is the man or woman. That I, well, I guess he's speaking personally here. This is the man that I want myself to be, but who cannot exist because God does not know anything about him. (laughs) And to be unknown of God is altogether too much privacy. My false and private self is the one who wants to exist outside of the reach of God's will and God's love. Or if if the word God makes you a, a, a little uncomfortable... My false self and private self is the one who wants to exist outside the reach of mystery, of reality, of truth, of love, outside of reality and outside of life. And such a self cannot help but be an illusion. Now, quick time out. He's saying nobody, nobody, nobody gets out of manufacturing, creating consciously and unconsciously a false self or a persona. Persona means mask. It's actually part of how we grow up. And um, and maybe just beneath the mask, you have something like the ego, who we think we are. Both of these things, the ego and the persona, um, I think Merton might call our false self, who we think we are at any given moment. 
um, and the thing that we are busy promoting and defending. He goes on. We are not very good at recognizing illusions, least of all the ones we cherish about ourselves, the ones we are born with and which feed the roots of sin. I know sin's super old-fashioned, but it means like to miss the mark, like an archery, to miss our aim, the aim of our own life. And we're not good at recognizing not only the fact that we have illusions, but that we're in love with them, we cherish them. Who would want them to go away? <laughs> For most of the people in the world, there is no greater subjective reality than this false self of theirs, which cannot exist. A life devoted to the cult of the shadow is what is called a life of sin, of missing the point, of missing the mark, of losing the plot. A life devoted to the cult of the shadow is called a life of sin. Think how much our present reality is, in fact, I mean, personally, and I think culturally, what it means to be an American or what it means to be a Westerner or what it means to be fill in a gender or an ethnicity or a people group or uh, a religious perspective, a life devoted to the cult of the shadow, which is essentially an illusion. All sin starts from the assumption that my false self, the self that exists only in my egocentric desires is the fundamental reality of life to which everything else in the universe is ordered. The self that exists only in my egocentric desires is the fundamental reality of life to which everything else in the universe is ordered. This is ordering the universe to our own making. As if we are the sun and the planets and the solar system and the entire cosmos revolve around our egocentric desires, our worldview, our way of seeing and being in the world, the face that we put out in the world, our personas and masks must revolve around us. And this is what happens in times of crisis. We freak the F out and we double down. Thus I use up my life in the desire for pleasures and the thirst for experiences, for power, honor, knowledge and love to clothe this false self and construct its nothingness into something objectively real. And I wind experiences around myself and cover myself with pleasures and glory like bandages in order to make myself perceptible to myself and to the world as if I were an invisible body that could only become visible when something visible covered its surface. And I cannot think of a more poignant definition of social media. And I feel like tweeting this <laughs> or putting this on my Instagram. I wind experiences around myself and cover myself with pleasures and glory like bandages. I'm doing great. Look at me. Look at all the crafts I'm doing. Look how I'm taking advantage. Look at the family, you know. Or it could be something different like, look how much I'm suffering. Look how I've been victimized. Notice me. I wind experiences around myself and cover myself with pleasures and glory like bandages in order to make myself perceptible to myself. I will recognize who I am by the external image that people can like or not like, and to the world. 
as if I were an invisible body that could only become visible when something visible covered its surface. But there is no substance under the things with which I am clothed. I'm hollow, and my structure of pleasures and ambitions has no foundation. I am objectified in them, but they are all destined by their very contingency to be destroyed. And when they are gone, there will be nothing left of me but my own nakedness and emptiness and hollowness to tell me that I am my own mistake. God, that is some good writing. Yes, and severance, being cast overboard, can feel like nakedness, emptiness, and hollowness. And we might ask, what really matters now that I'm adrift at sea? And the temptation, which I feel, we all feel, to bandage ourselves back up, ourselves back up, to put out that persona, um, to prop up the illusion is, I guess, on the one hand, totally understandable, but also totally false. Doesn't lead us deeper into the sinking that needs to happen. Maybe I ought to say, because this is a super long essay, I mean, my wife was uh, reading this to, to me the other day, and it's like I could just sit here and read the entire chapter here. So this is a chapter from uh, New Seeds of Contemplation, Thomas Merton, uh, chapter five. Um, let me just read one uh, little paragraph here just to bring Merton to a close here. There's only one problem on which all my existence, my peace, and my happiness depend. There's only one problem on which all my existence, my peace, and my happiness depend. To discover myself in discovering God, or mystery, or reality, or truth. If I find him, if I find God, I will find myself. And if I find my true self, I will find God. See, this is Thomas Merton at his most mystical. He's saying something like, the deep desire for ultimate truth, for meaning, for mystery, for union, for oneness, for God, for the transcendent, that outward-oriented pursuit of meaning and of ultimate meaning is also the same thing as discovering oneself, the inmost self or the true self, or to turn it the other way, the deep desire to sink beneath the personas, the masks, the Instagram posts, the Facebook posts, the ideologies, the religious perspectives, the theological rantings and ravings, the finger-pointing, the shaming, the judgment, the the, the corner we find ourselves backed in, into, to sink beneath all that, to sink beneath all that, to go down into the depths, to get curious about what is the true self? What really matters to me, to the deep self, to the true self? If I were lying on my deathbed and the people that I loved, those who were left, were, were gathered around me, Will I have said to myself, yes, I went as far as I could in this brief reprieve between birth and death to discover who I really am and what I am to bring forth in the world. That pursuit, that desire for the true self, the deep self, is the same thing as touching the divine. It's like, it's like that snake image eating its own tail. You're not sure where 
where the beginning or the end is. It's like you're on the same journey. To go outward, outward in the pursuit of God is to go inward, and to go inward into the pursuit of the true self is to go outward into the pursuit of God. And it is one. This is Merton at his most mystical. And I, and I honestly believe that something like the planet, like nature, like reality, like the big mystery is saying something like, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. Let the illusions die. You know, I just thought of D.H. Lawrence. We would rather be ruined than change. We would rather be ruined than changed. We'd rather stick to our own illusions and cling to our own illusions than be changed. And the whole world is saying, let yourself be changed. To use Jesus' language, you must be born again. You must be born again. It's the same exact image and invitation. I just thought of um, this beautiful passage where a blind man is shouting something out to, to Jesus, and, and Jesus turns and says, essentially, what do you want? He says, I want to see. I want to see. It's like, it's like to accept our own blindness. I am blind. I am blind. I am blind. I do not see. I do not see. I cannot see is at the very same time to touch the longing, which is a kind of sight. And Jesus says, all right, then see. Then now see from your state of blindness and your longing and your desire around the question of what really matters might be my, my way of putting it right now. Um, what do you see? Part three, solitude. Solitude. Solitude is different than loneliness. Loneliness probably has its own gifts um, and hardships, but solitude is something else. And um, I think in some ways, solitude is much more like a posture, a posture toward the world. In fact, I think you can, you can practice solitude in a crowd, um, although you also need the wind and the trees and the feeling of the earth beneath your feet, the ground, um, and you need the absence of input. But um, it's not quite the same thing as, as <laughs> just being an introvert, not liking wanting to be around people, but a kind of posture. Um, solitude to me is like turning toward what is unresolved and what is unknown. Turning toward what is unresolved and unknown, like what Rilke says. Turn toward what is unresolved in your own heart. Turn toward it and face it in the wild, creative, um, and courageous possibilities of a wide-open heart. That's solitude. To turn toward what is unresolved and unknown with a kind of courage and openness and vulnerability, as if you're, you're exposing the front of your chest and not going anywhere. Or as Rilke says, to go out into your heart as onto a vast plain. And there the immense loneliness begins, or I might say the immense solitude begins. Go out into your heart as onto a vast plain. To open up that way. And I think that um, the crises that we're in is calling for that kind of open-heartedness. 
By the way, without that kind of courageous open-heartedness, we will stay in our own isolated and privatized lives and not have the courage to step out and help when needed. Nor will we have the courage, I think, to face some of the inner demons and um, addictions and obsessions that... Um, that need our attention, that are blocking us from the full life. In fact, in fact, uh, even a kind of sobriety is needed right now, maybe now more than ever, not more numbing. And of course, I'm not. I've watched Netflix, too. I'm not here to judge, but I'm saying, um, do you want to say, um, I remained numb all of COVID-19. <laughs> I refused to change all of COVID-19. I refused to open my heart up to the, vulnerab the, the vulnerability of being itself. I did it. I succeeded. You can put on your tombstone, I succeeded in denying the opportunities in my own life. Rest in peace. <laughs> um, so, the passage I want to read, uh, speaking of the voices of uh, wisdom here, comes from uh, Thomas, uh, I almost said Thomas Berry, but I meant Wendell Berry. It's called The Real Work. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And when we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey. In some way, this is so anti-American. It's so anti-Western. It's so anti-victory and winning and triumph. It's saying there's a journey and there's a real journey, like there's a false self and a true self. And when we no longer know what to do and when we do not know the way, our real work and our real journey has begun. And then he says, The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. And right now, if you're like me, your mind, and I mean it in the best possible sense right now, your own creative, um, amazing capacities to imagine the future and to think and to strategize and to plan is baffled. Nobody really knows. The mind that is not baffled is not employed, so allow yourself to be baffled, is what he's saying. The impeded stream is the one that sings. What I hear Thomas, I keep saying Thomas Berry, maybe this is like a, it's a welling up from the soul saying, turn your attention toward Thomas Berry. Duly noted. What Wendell Berry I hear, what I hear him saying here is don't work, work too hard to remove the blockage in the stream. That the very blockage the very dam, the very um, the the constricted places in the stream that we call life is the place where life is enhanced, where where the stream begins to sing and to bubble and to pour over and to make music. The blockages are the things that make music. Now, I'm not saying personally that I want this to go on forever, that I want increased suffering, that I want people to, um, you know that I want people to lose, you know, their businesses. And of course, I don't want any of that. I don't I want, I want safety and well-being and health. And I want compassion and camaraderie and, and togetherness and interconnectedness and help at the same time, knowing that every form of impediment is an opportunity for us to sink into the song that is our life. 
And if our only rallying cry is, let's make everything normal, let's get back to normal, I think we miss a wild opportunity to sing within the impediments of life. It's like nature. It, nature is beautiful, harmonious, whole, integrated, and lovely. And it's also chaotic and terrifying and dangerous and doesn't play by even our own rules. And we know this now from, the, the, uh, from quantum physics. Not even nature plays by nature's rules. That seems to be the most mystical way of putting it. So we have to constantly live in this, in this uh, sort of paradox. And um, here's another way of saying it. Um, the real work here is something like this, is what I'm uh, sensing, that um, in silence, we're being invited to discover our true voice. You know, in, in moments of solitude, we're being invited to um, learn the ways in which we're deeply interconnected. Uh, in our stillness, we're invited to live with the paradox of learning to move again. In our sobriety, we're being invited to learn what it's like to really taste something. And in our grief, we're being invited to love. We wouldn't grieve if we didn't love. And these paradoxes, these paradoxes, these paradoxes are found in when life throws up a dam, when, when a, a log falls into the stream, when, um, when there's blockage and disruption and severance. Uh, I think that's when, from, uh, from the poem here, that's when we, we begin to long for and potentially find the song that is ours to sing. So, um, yeah, thank you for listening and for being a part of this. I want to uh, wanna say stay smart and stay safe and be courageous. Peace.